Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Bango. If you're looking to spruce up your space and add inspiration to your home or office, there's no better way than original art. And Bango is changing the way we discover art from some of the best emerging artists. So visit bangoart.com or download the Bango app on iTunes and use promo code State of the Art to get 15% off your first purchase. Now, allow me to welcome today's guest. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome the CEO of Verisart, Robert Norton. As former CEO of Saatchi Art and Sedition, Robert is one of the most revered authorities in art and tech. I always say, if you want to look at what is happening in the art and tech world, follow Robert Norton. Verisart, his current company, uses blockchain technology to certify and verify artworks online, allowing buyers to access the provenance of a piece and artists to ensure the security of their work. Today, I talked to Robert about how Barris Art uses Bitcoin blockchain to tell the history of a work and where it's been, why blockchain is the best way to ensure an artwork's authenticity, and how he sees the role of technology shaping the future of the art market. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Robert Norton. Robert, it's great to have you on State of the Art. Great to be here. Excellent. So tell us a bit more. I mean, you went from managing one of the largest uh, gaming organizations to the art world. How, how did that happen? Um, I was running King.com in North America between 2006, 2009, uh, largely because one of my earlier co-founders had co-founded the business, Toby Rowland. Um, and he got to a point where he said, Hey, Robert, you're in Los Angeles. We need some help. So you step in and help with one of our distribution deals, which was Yahoo at the time. And, uh, from what was meant to be a temporary, uh, amount of work for an old friend turned into three years of my life. Um, and it was a fascinating time to learn about casual games and, um, to really see the kind of uh, effectiveness of conversion funnels through partnerships with, uh, media brands and, uh, uh, media studios like NBC and Fox and uh, Fremantle and Endemol and others. Um, but my heart was never in casual games. And I um, knew that Charles Saatchi was looking for someone who could um, step in uh, as an entrepreneur and put together a vision for how the business could move from effectively a f- platform, a free platform, uh, allowing any artist to show their work to a little bit more of a structured e-commerce platform where the artist could actually sell their work and be paid and customers could buy their work. Because prior to 2010, um, Saatchi Online was a little bit like MySpace um, in the fact that you could show your work, but if you actually wanted to go and buy it, you had to do the um, financial transaction offline. And I kind of put it to Charles saying, look, it's a little bit like you're giving this great gallery space, 
but then you're saying, meet me down the back alley and I'll um, give you your painting and give me your money. And that was effectively what it was like to an online user. So it wasn't rocket science. It was simply uh, a question of really refreshing the look and feel of the site, bringing it up to speed in terms of uh, e-commerce standards that you'd see elsewhere, and obviously bringing in a social profile as well. And, and did you have a, a passion for art or what made you excited about that space? And was there anything coming from gaming that, that helped you uh, within the art world? I definitely have a passion for art. Um, both my parents studied art. Um, my mother was an artist uh, earlier on in her, in her life and you know, was still classified as an artist. She was just not making a living from it. Uh, my father actually just recently completed a history of art um, masters uh, later on in life. And my grandfather, most importantly, was a restorer. Um, so he um, was an artist, but he also worked for the National Gallery, uh, restoring works. And we grew up in a household that, where every uh, wall had paintings on it, not the kind of paintings that ended up in auction houses. But we did have, uh, we do have a disputed uh, Reynolds on the wall of one of my, my mother's homes in, in the UK. And... Um, we grew up looking at this and there was a, a age of innocence by joshua reynolds and there's a copy in um uh, the national gallery here in london and there's another copy in our route now this really uh was fascinating to me because i kept on thinking well how do people not know between you know an original and a copy and i didn't even realize that artists made lots of copies of their work um but of course you know in um uh previous years and in, in, in the uh, 19th century, it was very common for uh, an artist to have a studio and for people to work in the studio and for people to make copies of the artist's work. And some of these copies would um, actually be sold on the market uh, as copies, and others would just come onto the market. Um, and now in my current business, Verisar, obviously all of this has kind of manifested itself into you know what I'm choosing to spend my time on. But back then, what attracted me specifically about um, Sarch Online was the fact that it was an opportunity uh, to work with you know one of the the, um, the greatest uh, collectors I think uh, of the 20th century and certainly one of the greatest ad men um, Charles Sarchi and um, that wasn't an opportunity that comes around uh, every day and uh, and I jumped to it and uh, it was fascinating and I and I learned a lot and you know I'm proud of um, the fact that Saatchi Art, as it's called nowadays, is still uh, a significant platform for um, hundreds of thousands of artists to um, get their work seen and um, to find collectors in places that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to find them uh, if it was limited to their own physical surroundings. Yeah, I mean, it's literally because it's it's one of the leading platforms for you know emerging artists now. So that, that's incredible. And you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on is because I always tell people, uh, you know, if if you look at trends in the art world, I mean, see what Robert Norton is doing because this is your third uh, art and tech startup with Verisart. You know, you went from Saatchi to then Sedition, which was a, a digital art uh, marketplace. You know, tell us a bit more about I mean your vision and and what made you go in that direction. Well, it's really interesting because I actually, when I first moved to LA back in 2003, um, I noticed that 
screens were everywhere. You walked into a bar in, in, in LA, there were screens. You walked often into restaurants, there were screens. There were screens in elevators, there were screens in lobbies. Um, there were often like multiple screens and people's homes were active at the same time. And I was really fascinated by what else could be brought to screens that was not traditional entertainment, uh, you know, news, uh, sport, um, movies. Um, and I actually founded a company called Colorcom, um, uh, which was a joint venture uh, with a DVD authoring business called Comchoice uh, in Los Angeles. And it was also um, supported by Pantone, which is still is the leading uh, company for um, identifying colors. Um, so if you are printing something, you'll know what a Pantone number is because that is a way of referencing a specific color. And um, we generated um, DVDs that basically people put in their DVD players and it turned their screen into, uh, well, our first product was called Color Calm Skies and the background of the skies changed color and the second product was called Color Calm by Design. We had artists such as Peter Saville and Irma Boom and John Mader um, they're more well known for their graphic design work, but I would consider them artists. And these um, designer slash artists actually re- took the, uh, the screen as a blank canvas and using digital tools and techniques created works, which we then packaged in a DVD and sold in places like uh, bookshops uh, for Museum of Modern Art in New York, Conrad Shop. LACMA bookshops, basically museum gift shops. Um, and I did that business for, for, for several years until my old co-founder got me into working at King. Um, and I was very proud of some of the partnerships we did. We had a channel on JetBlue Airways back in 2004. We did a custom DVD for Bath and Body Works, um, which was distributed nationally. Um, we were in a bunch of hotels from all the W hotel suites in the W hotels to premium hotels like the Setai and Miami Beach. Anyway, the point of this story is to sh- say that early on I was kind of fascinated by the opportunities that technologies present. And I thought of it in terms of an aesthetic opportunity initially. And I guess part of that has kind of stuck with me. Um, you know, throughout my interest in this intersection of art and technology. I explained about Saatchi Online being really a serendipitous um, meeting and a fascination and an opportunity that I I jumped at. In terms of sedition, it very much fitted with um, my previous efforts um, about seven years ago to bring to screens aesthetic experiences. And in the case of Sedition, it was a different business model and it was a different uh, distribution platform because we weren't actually creating physical product. We were distributing the work digitally and we were using traditional web technologies to do that. But it was at Sedition that I really started thinking about certification um, because I kind of realized that, well, hey, if you're distributing digital works that are in their very nature infinitely and they're infinitely reproducible. Um, how do you retain value? And you know, one of the clearest ways that we thought we could retain value is by creating certification uh, for these digital works. Um, 
And I think there are challenges uh, with collecting digital works in pure digital form, um, which sedition continue to struggle with. Um, yet um, it is clearly a, a new market, one that is growing. And I think for those people that do use the service, I think that from from what I right hear, they they they, they do um, derive satisfaction and enjoyment from it. Yeah, T- taking a quick step back, uh, you know, I think blockchain is something that within the tech community a lot of people think about specifically when it comes to currency uh, with Bitcoin. But just for those in the audience who aren't familiar, I mean, can you just talk a bit more about blockchain as a concept and and then how that protocol is used at Verisart? Absolutely. I mean. At its essence, um, blockchain is a data structure. Um, and it's often referred to as a distributed ledger technology. Uh, one easy way to think about it is as a global spreadsheet that nobody owns. Um, I've heard that being described before. Um, but it's really built around um, three uh, core innovations. One is peer-to-peer networking. Um, and these innovations actually were, were already around, but they, they coalesced, they came together um, to form the blockchain as we know it. Largely, the Bitcoin blockchain is what I'm going to be talking about uh, in terms of this explanation. But it's peer-to-peer networking in the sense that not, no one person owns a copy of the blockchain. Any person who wants to run the Bitcoin blockchain can run the Bitcoin blockchain node, and they can have the whole blockchain that everybody else is seeing at that moment in time. And that's very important because it basically uh, is at the heart of why it is a decentralized um, ledger. And the second thing is um, the blockchain itself really refers to a a chain of um, cryptographically secure um, transaction blocks. Um, And so one of the great things that the blockchain is good at is proving that something occurred at the moment in time. Uh, once uh, a block um, has been uh, recorded with transaction IDs, it literally gets um, chained together from block to block. So one way to kind of think about it is that the um, recording in a block is etched in stone. You can't go back and change uh, a entry into the blockchain. And since um, almost 10, well, almost 10 years now. Next year will be the 10th anniversary of um, the white paper that uh, Satoshi Nakamoto released. Um, there has not been um, a case of somebody going back and falsifying an entry into the blockchain. I think that's what makes it a very uh, interesting um, and now, I think, proven um, piece of technology in terms of its resilience for companies and individuals and and entrepreneurs to build applications on. And then the final thing is there's something called the consensus mechanism. So uh, when somebody uh, has put something in a blockchain, uh, other people have to agree that that uh, information is also recorded. Um, And so there is a uh, consensus mechanism at play. And what that means in terms of layman speak is that you can't um, spend the same Bitcoin twice or more importantly, you can't um, uh, uh, record the same transaction ID uh, uh, twice. Um, and so these innate um, cryptographic anti-double spend provisions uh, can become very useful 
um, for proving other things, whether it's um, registration of title or whether it's proof of um, an action in terms of uh, a voting record or whether it's proof of payment. And so, and so now that's being applied into the, into the art world, how with various art? So we um, have built a platform that any artists can use for free and um, partners now can also uh, pay to customize and use in their own manner as to how they wish. And essentially what that platform does is it provides a new standard for certification of artworks and collectibles. Um, and let me explain what that is. So up until today, if you ask somebody for a certificate of authenticity, they'll give you a piece of paper if, if you're lucky. Um, but that piece of paper hasn't really changed um, in hundreds of years. It's normally um, a picture of the work, the title, the dimensions, the materials, the year of production, uh, the name of the artist, um, and the signature. And the signature may be from the artist, it might be from the gallery, if the gallery is authorized to certify that artist's work. Now, I think there's a fundamental problem with that because a piece of paper doesn't really work in an online environment. And what is the point of that piece of paper? Well, yes, it's in all, it, it guarantees authenticity or it is, a, it is an additional guarantee of authenticity to the buyer. It, but to the future buyer, what they're looking for is verification of provenance. They want to actually know that this work they're buying is the work that comes with this certificate and is the work that has the history that the seller is um, attesting to. Um, and the piece of paper on its own doesn't do that. So you have the piece of paper owns part of the value, which is a certificate of authenticity. But another huge part of the value is the provenance, the history of how much the work uh, was initially, uh, uh, if, if it's been sold at auction, how much it's sold for, if it's been shown at a museum or lent in it or, or at a gallery show where basically the, the provenance is, the, is where has the work been shown, uh, who has owned it, um, and how much it has been transacted for. Now, most provenance is really just concerned about where the work was shown. But obviously, these additional levels uh, may or may not be shared between uh, individual and individual. That That's up to um, consenting uh, parties to decide. Um, but then the third point is the registry. Who is maintaining, who is the authority to tell you this story? And the problem in the art market is that the registry often changes over time. So let me give you an example. Um, an artist's studio might be a registry. Uh, the gallery then may be the registry. The museum that bought it might then be the registry. The auction house that's selling it might now be the registry. Um, and then perhaps an artist's estate may become the registry. And that all might be the same work. And the problem is that in the art market, you have huge amount of data duplication and you have different information silos that are repeating themselves time and time and time over again. Whenever you have a large amount of data duplication, you have an increased risk of errors and omissions happening, uh, willingly or unwillingly. And also you have a liability because you've got data referring to highly valued objects, um, which may be at risk of being compromised or um, may indeed allow fraudulent activity to take place in terms of forged copies um, 
making their way into the market. So what Verisart does is it uses the most widely used distributed ledger, which is the Bitcoin blockchain, to effectively act as the registry. And by the registry, what we mean is that this information was recorded at this moment in time. Because if you can tighten up the issue and the question of what happened when, you can immediately reduce the scope for um, subsequent works to pass themselves off as, as real because you're proving an earlier proof point that everybody can agree that this moment of time is categorically uh, as good as any other. Is, in fact, it's categorically better than any other form of timekeeping we have to date. And that's what the Bitcoin blockchain offers. Now, for all of you listeners who are looking to replace your boring IKEA poster or add another piece to your collection, Bango can help. Bango's revolutionizing the way we discover art. They use machine learning to recommend art that you'll like, augmented reality to let you visualize that art above your couch, and live chats that you text directly with designers, all from your iPhone. They made finding my first piece fun and easy. So don't wait. Visit bangoart.com or download the app on iTunes and use the promo code State of the Art for 15% off your first purchase. Now, back to the episode. And I read a lot about how you say how removing you know, the middleman will increase trust and liquidity. I mean, what's what's the vision? You know, walk us five years from now. I mean, what is what's the result that that Bears Art has on the art world? I don't think removing the middleman increases trust and liquidity. I actually think the middleman is required for trust and liquidity. But I think the middleman can equally be a bottleneck for trust and liquidity. So I think it's in addition to the middleman is that what Verisart can enable is more visibility that actual works exist. And one of the things that the Bitcoin blockchain enables is um, shared cryptographic standards. So the art market needs both opacity and transparency, uh, in my opinion, um, because pricing and private information will um, continue to remain opaque for a long period of time. Um, there are security reasons why people don't want their private information made public um, in the same way that People keep their bank records um, private, um, and ultimately, you know, at some level, art is a um, a store of value, um, and therefore, people don't want to necessarily tell people where they keep it, where they keep their valued possessions. I think most people can understand that. Um, and then the second point is that um, pricing is largely based on what one person is willing to pay for it. Um, and whether that one person is willing to pay more than the next, willing to pay more for the next than the next person, um, and you know why some works uh, sell for a huge amount of money might be very specific to the um, desire of the buyers on that day and that month and that year, and that may not be replicated years down the line. So the reason why the Bitcoin blockchain is interesting is that these shared cryptographic standards safeguard uh, user anonymity, um, while at the same time providing a level of trust to a shared data set that people feel comfortable sharing, which might be just provenance, for example. Um, And therefore, if I 
know that a work of art has been recorded and it has been recorded as um, the artist's certificate of authenticity and then there's been a trail that has continued from that endpoint onwards. If I'm seeing that work being sold, even if I don't know who the person is, if I believe that this person has the correct certification in, to pass on at the time of sale, I think that that's going to help me enormously in terms of trust. Um, and what that means is that you have the ability to potentially bring into the market many, many more works um, than otherwise are able to reach traditional um, sales channels today. Because in our current structure, we require people to agree to selling terms and we require people to agree to um, any middleman terms, whether they're offline or online, uh, often prior to the work being shown. Um, and I think that if we can encourage more people to keep better certification, documentation of their objects, um, and then we can allow um, their objects and their artworks and the collectibles to be discoverable uh, through image identification, then we can foster new connections between interested buyers and potentially willing sellers um, that may not always be able to be brought together through the use of middlemen. So I actually think it makes the market stronger um, and um, broader in terms of the ability to see what's out there. You know, if you look at our daily lives, we've done a fantastic job of putting so much of our social activity online, you know, from how we're feeling to what we're eating uh, to what we're seeing. But actually, the story of our valued possessions remains largely offline. Um, it's difficult for me to know what's in your home. Now, I might have a specific interest in a drawing or a photograph or a work of art in your home, but you might have no intention of selling it. But you might have made a record of it because you might need to do that for your own cataloging purposes or your own insurance purposes or just um, uh, um, you know uh, you might want to, want to just to, to have shown that work to a friend of yours um, now if those works actually exist in a decentralized title registry um, through uh, your public key uh, which is uh, associated to an email address, I could effectively send you an email should you wish to receive emails regarding interest in your work saying, hey, Ethan, I noticed you got this work by this photographer I love. Any chance you'd be willing to sell it? Now, you might happen to be moving home uh, in a few months' time and you might not have room for this where you're moving or you might actually want to put something else on the wall instead. So I think there's a lot that can be done in the art market just to bring together um, people based on the existence of a work being easily understood. Um, and that's something that I think is, is, is one of the aims of Verisal. And I love the idea of, I mean, you talked about the social component, but I mean, it's not just collectors or even institutions, but also artists who are a big fan of this because, you know, you often hear artists being frustrated by not knowing who owns their art or even where in the world their art is at that time. And so I think with Verisart, it could provide an opportunity for them to know um, and to have some insight into that. Yeah, I mean, our default position is we don't touch um, user information and location itself is an optional field. Um, so the only thing that we really 
require the um, data fields that you would expect to see in an auction catalog. Um, and I've kind of highlighted those earlier, but it's uh, the image of the work, the title, the dimensions, the materials, year of production, uh, any other kind of things you might want to add. Um, but of course, some people will be very happy to um, share their personal information, um, particularly people that want to sell their work um, or suddenly share the fact that they're open to receiving requests. Um, now, the reason why artists, I think, like us, um, and so one of you know the artists that we have using our system is, is Shepard Ferry. And um, uh, last time I looked, he was the third most followed artist on Instagram after uh, Banksy and um, uh, JR. And so he's a huge uh, artist with broad appeal. Um, and Shepard, you know, not only has a very thriving business for uh, relatively um, accessible uh, prints, uh, multiples, posters that he signs and he sells and these flash sales online, but he also has a, a thriving um, uh, contemporary art business at a kind of higher price point, you know, um, five and six figures uh, and up. And um, with Shepard, you know, one of the big problems is that um, when you're dealing with lots of uh, uh, multiples out there, um, that there's always a danger that um, people are faking your work. In fact, every artist, uh, when they become successful uh, at some point, may become vulnerable to fraudulent activity. And any artist who suffers from fraudulent activity overall um, has um, that their market suffers. Um, and so if you can reduce the scope for fraudulent activity through um, categorical certification of the work, then what it does is it immediately makes it harder for um, people to pass off fakes as originals. So essentially, that's what Verisart um, provides to artists. It provides uh, museum or auction um, grades or auction level standards classification or museum grade classification of uh, artwork. It also provides blockchain certification. And now we're about to release the image identification, which will allow real-time verification and provenance. And if you look at other industries, whether it's the book industry with its ISBN number or retail that has a UPC code, I believe we're at the point now where a painting itself, a print, a photograph um, can on its own be a unique identifier just through image identification. That's incredible. I mean, it, and it goes in a space that is has is so opaque and has a lot of secrecy to it. I mean, you can see the value that this would bring to the market. I mean, what are some of the the, the challenges though when when looking at Verisart and in the art world adopting uh, blockchain technology? Well, I mean, you know, as with anything, um, new technologies take a time to be understood. Um, and we started this business um, over two years ago. And back then, um, nobody even knew, most, not nobody, certainly the people we were talking to knew, but a lot of um, people, um, artists and galleries had never heard um, of the term blockchain. Um, so now in two years' time, you know, I think that has um, sort of lessened. Um, and what we're seeing is that uh, auction houses and galleries um, actually intend to offer blockchain technology 
within the next five years. And this year's TFAF, which is the um, kind of art market report um, put out by um, um, uh, European Foundation, um, actually they have a, a statistic saying three out of four auction houses intend to offer blockchain technology within the next five years. And, and you know, we're obviously hoping that that, that that will take place. But the challenges are really about uh, for adoption is, is the fact that um, the art market is relatively slow to adopt new technology. Um, and certainly um, cutting edge technology, which even for people in the tech industry is a challenge to get their head around, such as applied cryptography. Um, the art market um, just takes time. But I do fundamentally believe that this blockchain protocol is perhaps the best technology for the art market um, that I've seen in, in 20 years. And um, I think it uh, is as significant as um, the World Wide Web was for allowing galleries to post images of works and have them widely seen effectively, you know, to, to, to publish um, their websites. I think this is um, the next phase of Internet of Information is the Internet of Value. And the blockchain is a way of, is really the protocol for the internet of value. Yeah. And I think, I mean, having an artist like Shepard Ferry come on and do this sets a good trend because really it seems like the artists are ones who can, you know, like you said, from a provenance perspective, I mean, literally starting with them and push it and it, and have it be something that, you know, encourages then galleries and auction houses uh, to adopt. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're thrilled to have Shepard on board. I think he's a, great entrepreneur as well as a great artist and in fact so many of the great artists are great entrepreneurs i mean jeff coons and damien hurst or others um and i think that you know these these artists are running substantial businesses and like anyone they want to ensure that um the assets in their business are, are securely recorded and when it comes to art you know there is very little intrinsic value in the actual um uh, you know, materials that are used. I mean, it's, it's it often the case, it's a canvas, it's paint, it's, it's charcoal, uh, it's paper, uh, it's a print. And so the certification, I think, in the art market is um, so critical. Let me ask you, I mean, it's interesting. One of our, our guests talked about, so taking this a little bit higher, I mean, part of this in, in, in Verishark growing is, is I think that more and more liquidity happens in the marketplace. And that can be through people who already exist in the marketplace, as well as bringing new buyers to the marketplace. Uh, you know, they said a great quote, which was, you know, in the art world, we're not competing against each other. We're competing against Candy Crush. And really what they meant is we're competing against games and social and all these other platforms. I mean, you came from the company that, you know, actually now owns Candy Crush at king.com. Do you see ways, I mean, how, how do you think about this in terms of the growth of sort of the art industry as a whole um, and and how different startups are playing a role in increasing the accessibility of art. It's interesting. I've, I've changed, I think, my position uh, on, 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 this, uh, on this question over time. I used to think um, that very much art was an extension of other activities um, in terms of... Um, you know, music and sport and, um, and, 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 and I guess kind of 
the activities that we we perhaps spend our leisure time doing. Um, and you know, certainly when you look at kind of levels of you know museum attendance, uh, particularly in countries where you know the museum tickets are free, you'll see phenomenal numbers. And then people say, "Hey, look, there are these millions and millions of people going to museums or cultural institutions every weekend." Therefore, art is more popular than sport. You know, that's one of the things that I've heard at one point. Or um, look at all the different images that are out there. Art is, an, is, 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 you know, we, we want to be to art what Spotify is to music, you hear some people say. Um, the problem that um, art has is that unless you're a collector, uh, you're not really part of the uh, economic um, landscape, um, really kind of what drives um, the art market from a collecting point of view. Um, and I would argue that although you might consider yourself a, a huge fan of a certain artist, it's probably a little bit different to a Knicks fan or a Lakers fan in terms of how they define themselves. It may not be that the average person is, you know, wearing a um, Gerhard Richter uh, T-shirt uh, to go to bed in at the weekends. Now, of course, there might be some people who are doing it, but I pretty sure there'll probably be more people uh, in Yankees T-shirts um, at the weekends. And so I kind of feel that that even though people think art is um, something that they like to say they're interested in, whether or not it's as core to their self-identification and their um, self-expression, um, and certainly the amount of money that they uh, spend in the absence of actually collecting art, um, I think is, is questionable. Um, and therefore, to answer your kind of question of like, we're competing against Candy Crush, um, I don't believe that uh, art is fundamentally mainstream in the way that um, music and sport um, and entertainment is um, because of the fact that um, it's kind of harder to, 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 to experience um, for, for, for a large number of people at the same time. And, you know, the reason why um, uh, Netflix or Spotify or Amazon, when certainly on the ebook side of things, does such a great job. And to that extent, so does a company like King.com, is that when you're selling product that never runs out, that basically everybody is seeing the same uh, uh, episode of Stranger Things uh, or uh, listening to the same LCD sound system track or reading the same Wilbur Smith um, digital book um, or playing the same new version of Candy Crush. Um, that in itself is, is, is much easier uh, for digital companies to um, reach a homogeneous uh, experience for uh, the majority of people at the same time. Now, with art, it's very difficult to do that because even if you look at one painting, uh, it may be shown in a very different context from museum to museum. So the experience in itself is different uh, according to the in, in, according to the context. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, if you ask somebody what was the last song they heard, what was the last movie they saw, what was the last sports game they uh, they went to, if they're a sports fan, they can probably like 
come up with it straight away. But if you ask some last painting that they saw, it might be a little bit harder. Um, it's a more infrequent activity, typically. Uh, again, unless you're um, collecting, in which case you have a, an economic incentive to stay ahead of uh, the information. But otherwise, you know, maybe on average people are going to museums four times a year. Um, I, I don't know. You'll have to check the data yourself. But um, I think they're listening to music more than that. And if they're a sports fan, they're, they're certainly going to be uh, watching games more than that. Um, so it doesn't lend itself necessarily to broadcast. I mean, a lot has been attempted in terms of bringing um, art to a broader public. And I think that the museums have done a fantastic job, uh, first and foremost, in kind of making art more accessible. Um, I think there are some great content platforms out there that have provided a lot more editorial around the art market than you know, was around before. And I think, you know, platforms such as Saatchi Online in terms of building uh, uh, a new market for artists to sell their work direct are, you know, definitely steps in the right direction. Um, likewise, um, Sedition, I think, has had a leadership role in terms of um, bringing to the forefront of people's minds the idea that there is art natively in digital format that is collectible, that is affordable, that can be put on any different screen. Um, but when you take into account the sum total of every single participant in the digital slash online art market, including the auction houses, including the largest galleries, um, it's uh, kind of dismal uh, uh, amount of activity when compared to the overall art market. I mean, total online sales is about $2.5 billion a year. And the online art market, sorry, the overall art market is around $60 billion a year. So less than 5% of the art market is currently sold online. Now you look at that compared to other industries, fashion, you know, obviously music, books, games, like we were just talking about, you know, online games is, is I mean, the casual games market is eclipsed pretty much uh, any other uh, games market right now. And, um, you know, that hasn't happened in art. Um, and we're a long way off that um, happening. And that's largely because um, the works that people want to buy are still largely physical. Um, they still require a high degree of uh, trust that what you're buying is real. Um, and therefore, um, they're still traditionally sold through um, physical outlets. Um, now, I believe that trusted certification and real-time verification of provenance will accelerate um, the growth in online sales. Um, but I don't think we're going to approach uh, the levels that you see uh, when you're comparing these other categories that are much more mainstream and ultimately people consume natively in digital format, which um, they don't in art. One of the things I learned from um, spending three years at Sedition and building that business uh, from ground up to pretty much uh, what you see today uh, is that even though there is undoubtedly a trend towards more art, uh, incorporating digital tools uh, and more artists being interested in the digital medium. Um, the actual uh, 
uh, intrinsic psychological value of ownership and collecting is still very, very heavily tied up with um, tactile and physical works. And um, that may be something that is very core to who we are as human beings. Um, I was speaking to a friend, Dr. Nancy Eckhoff at Harvard University several years ago. And I was like, hey, Nancy, can you give me some examples? Are there, are there any parallels that you can, you can kind of point to in terms of, um, you know, humans um, having collectible relationships with non-physical uh, objects? Um, and it was, very, it was very hard to find any real examples. And actually, if you look at the earliest um, uh, grave um, sites for, for human beings, they're often buried with the things that they held in their hands most of their time, whether it's little figurines or, you know, rosaries or a certain kind of ring or, or amulet or charm that was very, very dear to that person. And so I do think that, that how close we are, how, 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 how much we can touch something uh, is really um, significant to how much we value it. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there to unpack. I, I think one platform you, you, to mention is, is Instagram. I mean, in terms of exposing people to art and artists and, you know, one of the things I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, but it's around, I mean, part of what's so important with selling art, especially from emerging artists is that story behind who they are. And that's something that, you know, perhaps actually what you're doing, I mean, carrying the story with a piece or, I mean, other technology like Instagram and video can help do better than offline uh, is to tell that story. I mean, when you go to a gallery, you may never meet that artist. I mean, you might read a bio about them, but now if you can see them or, or hear from them, that could be one way that increases the number of people collecting. So absolutely. Listen, I think we're only uh, in a, an increasing trend for creators to reach new audiences, to tell stories in more effective and meaningful ways through technology than ever before. And I, to your point, Instagram, I think, is single-handedly probably the most significant um, platform for the art market because um, every single collector that I know uses Instagram. Um, every gallery has an Instagram account. Uh, artists also like it because it's a visual medium. It's an essentially a purely visual medium. And I think Instagram uh, has had an enormous um, success in getting images out there. Um, and art is really about disseminating your, your art. And if your art can be captured as an image, then it's about disseminating your art as an image. Uh, I feel like if Andy Warhol was alive today, he would probably be, uh, all over Instagram. And uh, if he had, if he, if he didn't, if he didn't have the, um, uh, uh, luck of inventing it himself. Um, but, uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of add to that is that it's not just uh, Instagram, of course, it's also Google. It's also the ability to search an image. Um, and I think we're just beginning to see uh, widespread adoption of um, reverse image search technology where you can snap a picture of an artwork and you can immediately see everything about that artwork, where it's been uh, reported, uh, where it's been um, which social uh, handles it's, 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 been, it's been posted on. Um, I think you're going to be able to see a real um, 
uh, another significant change uh, in terms of um, the kind of Instagram plus Google image search, uh, plus also the linked open data policies that museums have uh, increasingly um, ascribing to and, and also releasing huge amounts of data. I mean, you know, you look at the Rijksmuseum in, um, uh, in Amsterdam and, you know, you can go and download, uh, any one of their artworks that are in public domain and you can use those high res images for your own purposes. If you want to start a business with shower curtains, uh, Rembrandt paintings, you can do that. Um, so I think that there's, uh, a lot of, uh, information that is pushing uh, the art market towards more transparency. And, and Instagram is at the forefront of that, Google, and also uh, linked open data policies from museums. And my belief is that this um, transparency of uh, data uh, will hopefully then lead to a transparency of um, title. And the way to handle that is as a decentralized title registry. And that's the aim of Verisol. Excellent. That's a, a great way to, to sum up this episode. And uh, before I let you go, I would love to have you do a quick rapid fire. Absolutely. All right. So I think I might know the answer to this first one, but uh, art will be as popular as music in what year? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I think art is already as popular as music. It's just popular for different reasons. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be consumed the way music is consumed today. Okay, good. Who's your favorite superhero and why? I don't have a favorite superhero, but I have some superpowers I think I'd like, which would be to be invisible and to time travel. Ooh, I like that last one. Okay, and what is your life motto? Two things, always be curious and never give up. Always be curious and never give up. Robert, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being part of State of the Art. Have a great day. Thank you, bye-bye. So don't forget, visit Barris Art at BarrisArt.com. That's B-E-R-I-S-A-R-T.com or on Twitter at Barris Art. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode and really cool art videos you're gonna wanna show your friends. Thanks again to Van Gogh for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're an artist looking to create more or a buyer wanting to enrich your home with original art, visit vangoart.co slash podcast and save 30%. Until next week, you can reach out to me directly on Twitter at Ethan Appleby with your thoughts, feedback, and compliments. I also want to thank everyone on the team. State of the Art is a team effort here at Van Gogh. And I couldn't have done it without Deepak Kanda, who runs creative outreach and is a jack of all trades. To Wes Stevens, who's the most meticulous audio engineer and makes me sound way better than I should. And with special help from Clara Pryke and Amanda Hart. Thanks, signing off of State of the Art.